0: Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Countdown, Tom Hartman, Al Franken, Democracy Now!, Le Show, and The Young Turks.
1: Beyond being a national referendum on the Bush presidency, next week's election also likely to define the legacy of the man who won Mr. Bush the White House in the first place, Karl Rove. Most likely getting to keep his genius status permanently should the Republicans retain Congress or even at this point just come close in the House. Should they lose both? Well, let's just say that part about being known as Bush's brain probably will not be considered a compliment anywhere anymore, assuming that it was widely. Joining me now, the senior political writer of the Dallas Morning News, Wayne Slater, also co-author of the new book, The Architect, Carl Rove and the Master Plan for Absolute Power. Thank you for your time tonight, sir. Good to be with you, Keith. Let's take a look at the premise. Washington is a very much "what have you done for me lately" kind of town, but also knowing there is some difference of opinion on this particular point. But if the Republicans lose the House say and retain the Senate, would it call Mr. Roe's legacy into question? Well,
2: so, you know, isn't this the party of personal responsibility? <laughs> so you got to think that if uh, after 2002, Carl Rove was the guru in chief for defying history when the Republicans gained seats in an off-year election, 2004, he's the architect. In 2006, if things go south, it has to diminish his star in some way and yet I think there are there is an argument to be made that anybody even a God a political god like Carl Rove is going to lose in a year like this
1: to, uh, to quote the great David Fry those who uh, those who are to blame lose their jobs those who are not uh, those who are responsible do not uh, but beyond the question of what happens if the Republicans lose uh, Rowe's supreme confidence that his party is not going to lose is that? an act or does he really believe that they're going to win do you have a a, a sense from what you've heard from him in the last few weeks
2: yeah you know I've talked to Carl I've talked to some other people and the odd thing about Carl is that there's no question part of this is an act Uh, what you do is you try to the last thing you want to do is suggest project the idea that you're going to lose that it's going to be a tidal wave against you and that's nothing uh, that will just make the uh, the base sort of uh, turn out Uh, But on the other hand, there is something about Carl. I remember him in the year 2000 when he thought the president was going to win the New Hampshire primary. He lost. He thought the president was going to win in California. He didn't. And so there's something almost delusional about Carl. Sometimes he looks at the numbers and sees what he wants to do and what he wants to see, even if in looking at those numbers he's seen deeper than most of us.
1: The NPR interview speaks to that almost last week where he talked about your math versus the math. Implying he had the math is that is that strength confidence is it something sort of scary that he knows more than uh, somebody else might know about how this is going to turn out before it's actually taken place or is this uh, whistling past graveyards?
2: Well, you know, I, I've known Carl for 15 years and I never underestimate them in any case. I have to say that I was at a book deal the other day and a. Prominent re- Democrat walked up to me and said, "Why is Carl so confident? There is another explanation here besides his supreme confidence. It's that he's in their heads and he knows it. Carl has the ability to get into the minds of Democrats and scare them to death."
1: Like a pitcher who may or may not be throwing a spitball. <laughs> uh, if the Republicans lose or the party split Congress, which would be the bet most people would put the, the put the money on right now, the latter of those what happens to all the systems the procedures the rituals the 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 funneling of power the funneling of of uh, other things that mr rove has established since january of 2001 do they do they get dismantled do they get interrupted what happens in the position of a democratic senate a or a democratic ha- house or either one of them or both and this this mighty administration that has been chugging along by itself the last 5 years
2: all these democrats who th- think that everything's going to be great in November, they're going to take the House, maybe the Senate, and the end of Karl Rove's effort to establish an enduring Republican majority is at hand, might want to think about this, because the apparatus that he's put together, he, Ken Melvin, Matthew Gowd, and other Republican geniuses in this party, this apparatus with the Christians, with the business interests, with the voter vault, with everything that's part of this constituency and this method of winning elections again and again, even if they lose in November, because this has been a catastrophic year for Republicans, even if they lose, that mechanism still in place, and if I were a Democrat, I wouldn't be thinking that we have won completely until 2008. This machine will be back. Here in Texas, 15 years ago, somebody told me, never bet against Carl, and I'm not betting against him today.
3: Huffington, welcome to the Tom Hartman program.
4: Hi, how are you?
3: I'm great. I I just played. It was really a setup for your coming on the program here. I played a clip from Bush before his RNC speech that was uh, just a whole series of
2: be afraid, September the 11th.
3: Of these kinds of things, followed by Franklin Roosevelt. Let
2: me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to
3: fear is
4: fear itself.
3: And you have a new book out on being fearless, on being fearless in love, work, and life. And I I realize that to a certain extent it's sort of a a self-help book for women, but it's also a, a frame for a larger national issue, isn't it?
4: Absolutely. You know, you gave me goosebumps as I was listening to FDR, because although the book is about building a personal foundation of fearlessness in all areas of our lives, from that personal foundation, we can actually become effective leaders and effective citizens. Because what, Tom, um, I believe has happened is that so many of our leaders have actually bought into the Republican fear-mongering, not just about um, smoking guns turning into mushroom clouds, which is how we got into Iraq, but also about the fear of being perceived as soft on national security, fear of being framed as cutting and running. And all these are nothing but fears. It's kind of ironic that Democrats were constantly afraid of, of talking about leaving Iraq um, because that was supposed to be against the tough, staying on course message of the president. And now hearing the president trying to run away from staying the course. Yeah. So well, that shows, you know, how how afraid we have been. And I hope that the book between now and the election will help spread that kind of epidemic of fearlessness because fear is the only thing that would get Republicans reelected.
3: Yes, and fearlessness is what we need. And there's a certain element of school schoolyard bully about the Republicans. And one of the things that I recall from growing up is that the schoolyard bully was often one of the most brittle and fragile people in the schoolyard. And and when confronted and when backed down, it often collapsed very very quickly. And I'm wondering when the Democrats are going to get it that Bush is playing a bully routine. And if they were to aggressively call him on it, he'd roll over.
4: Yes, I mean absolutely. And you know that is really what has been stunning to me. Tom, all those years, six years, of allowing Bush to frame the issue, especially on national security. Um and you know it's interesting you played f d r because if you I went back and and uh, looked at what made f d r make that statement, and it was really his own personal foundation of fearlessness after dealing with polio after as he said, having spent two years trying to wiggle his big toe yeah. and beginning to to believe that he could handle anything after that. And that's really what is missing from so many of our leaders.
3: Well, I understand Rush Limbaugh now says that uh, FDR faked his polio to get sympathy. Ah.
4: (laughs) Just just kidding. (laughs) Uh,
3: We're talking with Arianna Huffington, her new book, I'm Becoming Fearless in Love, Work, and Life. Also, HuffingtonPost.com, of course, her blog, and uh, a great website. Um, Arianna, what's the most effective way that we can spread fearlessness as a meme in the political arena, other than simply, conf- you know, speaking of it?
4: You mean other than reading my book, Tom? Yes. <laughs> <indeed>. <laughs> well, in fact, you know what? Together with the Progressive States Network and the White House Project, we've gotten about a thousand books out that were donated by my publisher. Mm-hmm to men and women running for office in this election from Congress and the Senate down to the Board of Supervisors because we really believe that if candidates tap into their own fearlessness, they will sound different. They will not sound so uh, cowed by the kind of fear-mongering that especially just before an election becomes worse and, and, um, and, and more scary Mm-hmm. than before.
3: Well, and, and, and having fear is part of the n- normal human condition, I mean, it's a, Absolutely, it's a fundamental you know, survival instinct.
4: Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that, because fearlessness is not the absence of fear. The way I define it in the book is the mastery of fear. It's doing what you believe is right and saying what you know is right, even while you're afraid, even while you're being attacked and criticized.
3: And you've certainly experienced that in your own life.
4: Absolutely, and I write about that. You know, often people say to me, oh, when when were you afraid? And so I, I write chapter and verse all the dozens of times in my life when I confronted major fears, whether it was being a gawky, too tall girl uh, growing up in Athens when I was 5'10 and my classmates were five nothing or speaking at the Cambridge Union with this accent, which, as you probably have seen, I've now lost. <laughs>
3: yeah, brilliantly, too.
4: <laughs> and um, and being ridiculed by persevering, to having a book rejected by 37 publishers, to having a man I was in love with not wanting to marry me. You know, I, I, I write all that because I believe it's important for others to see how all of us face failure and setbacks in our lives. And the difference is how quickly do we recover? Mm-hmm. And how quickly do we bounce back? That's what fearlessness is.
3: Persistence.
4: Persistence, exactly. Uh, Not getting discouraged is the key to success. And embracing failure is ironically the key to success because there's nobody who has succeeded, who has not failed along the way. And as a mother, you know, I have two teenage daughters to whom the book is dedicated. I try to drum this into their heads more than anything because so often many of us, Don't try new things because we're afraid we will fail. Mm. I know it happened to me with the Huffington Post. You know, before we launched it, there were so many doubters and naysayers. You had to sort of plow on and take the risk.
5: Sure,
3: and and we need and we and we must figure out some way to infect the Democratic Party with this meme of fearlessness. This idea of fearlessness. Send out copies of your book to every member of the party. uh, But
4: you're right. It is a meme of fearlessness. And in the same way that fear is contagious, fearlessness is contagious too. And it only takes a critical mass to change um, the perception and to change the climate in which uh, politicians are operating.
5: Best for choice. Golden days are passing over Yeah. I can't seem to see you, baby. Although
6: my eyes are open wide. Paul Reichhoff is author of Chasing Ghosts, a Soldier's Fight for America, from Baghdad to Washington. Terrific book. He's also the executive director and founder of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, which has just released a congressional report card examining the voting history on issues that uh, affects U.S. troops, Iraq, and uh, Afghanistan war veterans military families. These votes from members of Congress. Paul joins me by phone from New York City. Hey, Paul.
7: Hey, Al. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on.
6: Okay, tell me about this, uh, the IAVA's uh, congressional report card. That's what you Well, it, right?
7: there's been a lot of rhetoric coming out of Washington since this war began about who supports the troops and who doesn't. So we wanted to dig through the votes and, and find out who really was putting their money and, and their votes where their mouth was. So we looked at issues like TRICARE health insurance for guardsmen and reservists, uh, body armor issues, VA funding, and what okay. we found in general is that Congress is not doing enough. Uh, Eighty-six members got a D or an F on the issues that matter to and we also created a resource so everybody in America could go to our website. If you go to iavaaction.org, you put in your zip code or your state, and you could find out specifically how your representative voted on these issues that are really important to Iraq and Afghanistan vets.
6: Now, I did that myself, and well, I'll come up with the results uh, in a second on, on the Minnesota delegation. Uh, but <clears throat> let's let's go into these, uh, uh, th- these different uh, areas, TRICARE for reservists. Now, basically uh reservists and guardsmen don't get health care when they're back in the United States when they're not on duty right correct uh right. yeah and uh, but they could they could resume uh you know they could be sent back any at any moment right exactly, so their health really kind of is is an actual strategic asset
7: yeah I mean, it, it makes sense <laughs> yeah. on a lot of levels al i mean a, we need to take care of our people who are in. Uh, you know, you need to make sure that they have health coverage, not just when they're deployed, but when they're getting ready to deploy and, and after they've come back. And also, let's be honest, this is a pretty tight recruiting environment, and this is a good tool for us to get folks into the National Guard and Reserve if they know they can get health care coverage. Uh, but there are a number of members of Congress who voted against this, and, and that's a direct vote against the troops. If you're voting against TRICARE, you don't support the troops. And you know, let, let's take an example. A guy named uh, Mike Fitzpatrick, who's running in a tight race in, in Pennsylvania's eighth against an Iraq war vet, Patrick Murphy, a guy who served in the 82nd Airborne. Mike Fitzpatrick voted against TRICARE. He gets a C-minus in our book, and and. An unacceptable grade, because he's not putting his votes uh, where he says he is. He says he supports the troops, but he clearly doesn't. Okay.
6: Uh, Yeah, now, I I remember watching a hearing. It was uh, actually when Myers was still chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and Hillary Clinton was questioning him and said, why don't we give this uh, health coverage to our reservists and our guardsmen? And he just said, money. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, he he really didn't. I, I had to admire him. He didn't mince words about. it He said it's very expensive. He said, yeah. and and then uh, and I'm thinking like, whoa, we, we've we've had these tax cuts for people at the very top. We just learned today that Chevron is not going to give hundreds of millions of dollars for royalties of its uh, the oil gets out of the Gulf. Um, you know. We got to set some priorities, folks, and this is a priority. I'm looking at um, I want to go, I'm looking at my delegation here. Um, Senator Mark Dayton, A minus. So this is uh, that that's that's good. There aren't yeah. that many A's in this, as I see as I look around. Uh, Senator Norm Coleman, a D. Uh, Gil Gutnick in the first district, a C plus. Mark Kennedy, uh, who's running for the Senate here, C+. Plus. John Klein, running for re-election as a congressman uh, in the 2nd District, a C. Uh, the rest of the, uh, the delegations uh, is, is all Bs or B-pluses or B-minuses, uh, including uh, Jim Ramstad, who's a Republican, got a B-minus, and B plus, some B-pluses from others. Let's talk about some of the other ones. Funding for TBI research, uh, traumatic brain injury research, this one is crazy to me.
7: Yep. Yeah, well, you, you were great in, in having us on to talk about this when Congress was actually debating this issue. Uh, but there was a proposal on the table to increase funding for traumatic brain injury research. Traumatic brain injury is, is, a, is an affliction facing thousands of veterans who have come home after an IED or a roadside bomb has gone off near them. It's kind of like a super concussion and can result in blindness, uh, severe head trauma, and all kinds of long-term problems. Uh, and this is another issue where the spokesman from the Defense uh, Appropriations uh, uh, Committee said, said that we have other funding priorities, and we were talking about, about $5 million out of a $400 billion defense authorization bill. And and two key people here who voted against traumatic brain injury, Rick Santorum, who gets a D-minus in our book from Pennsylvania, and George Allen from Virginia, he voted against traumatic brain injury. So I hope people... For funding for money. it, of course. I'm sorry? For funding for it, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is, you know, something we have to settle. I mean, you have to get this money to these people. They can't wait. And, and you know, when Congress decides to close up shop and go back to campaign, uh, this isn't settled. And, and that's a real, a real slap in the face to the thousands of, of troops and families who are suffering from traumatic brain injury.
1: Now, what
6: happened here ultimately? Uh, ultimately, this money was passed, right, by the Senate?
7: No, it still hasn't been resolved. They voted oh. to table it until they come back. Oh, you're kidding me. No, they voted to table it. And 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 that's why anybody who voted to table this got got a ding in our book and went down a notch. Uh, they couldn't get it settled. Um, there was a, a lot of bickering back and forth, and ultimately the House and the Senate couldn't uh, come to an agreement, and they voted to table it till they come back.
6: Okay, here's the thing about this: this, this is the uh, signature wound of this war, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's and as you said, it's IEDs. It's mortar fire. It's uh, suicide bombers. That it's it's concussive injury. And you know I've seen documentaries on it. I've visited guys in uh, Walter Reed who have traumatic brain injury who didn't know I was in the room, and been and talked to a young wife who, who was as cheerful as I could. You know she's going. He's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. Yeah. And I, I remember I took a picture with him, and uh, I signed it. You won't remember <laughs> this. <laughs> and I'm hoping, man, that he will get see that picture someday and get a laugh. That's yeah. all I'm hoping.
7: It's heartbreaking stuff, Alan. You've seen it firsthand, and, again, I want to give you credit for it because I know you do go down there and you've been to Iraq a number of times, and we really appreciate it. Um, but but this is the stuff that the politicians aren't feeling. They're not uh, feeling the personal impact of these types of decisions. And, and it's, not, it's not just that. They also voted against the military death gratuity. There was a proposal to increase the military death gratuity from 12,000 to 100,000. Rick Santorum voted against that. He voted against upping the military death gratuity. As it stood before, you could barely even cover the cost of a funeral. But this is something that Centorum and a number of other people in the Congress actually had the audacity to vote against.
6: What do they think? Do they think that, I mean, do they think no one's going to call them on this? I guess so. And until I think you part of it,
7: out, yeah. I think they think nobody's going to call them on it, and and to be honest with you, veterans groups uh, haven't made, you know, a tremendous impact, and most people don't know anybody serving. They don't have anyone in their family who's been affected. Um, But a lot of the people who got bad grades from us also got bad grades from other organizations. Disabled American veterans and other veterans groups do rankings, and they're all pretty much on the same page. Right. So, you know, we're hoping that people will check this out, call your congressman, call the local paper, get involved, and, and let people know these votes are unacceptable. And I know you've got Barack Obama coming up in a little while. He did well. You know, he's a junior senator. He voted for the military death gratuity. He voted for funding for traumatic brain injury, and he gets a B B+. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a testament to the fact that he's, he's off to the right foot, uh, and, and he's making a good stand so far on veterans' issues.
6: Yeah, he's a good guy. We, we, we actually uh, pre-taped the interview yesterday afternoon. It and It's a fabulous interview. And man, oh man, what a great guy he is! I gotta tell you. But let's get back. Let's get back to to this. Um, you talk a lot about. You say a lot of people don't know anyone uh, who's who's fighting this war. You talk a lot about the experience of coming back, which you were there for a year, uh, of coming back from Iraq, and coming to the United States, and it feeling like. We here in the United States don't even know there's a war going on. Like, you're you're coming back to a place where no one's acting as if there's a war. Uh, uh, You know, I was at a, I don't know, I think it was a bean feed here in Minnesota. And a woman, I remember just this woman who was like in her 80s said to me, she said, you know, during World War II, if we saved a little aluminum, we felt like we were doing something. Americans haven't been asked to do anything. And it must feel very strange coming back to this country that doesn't doesn't seem like it, it it knows or cares about what's going
7: on. It it is tough. I think it's one of the toughest parts about coming home and no matter what part of this war you fought in, when you come home you feel like America's living life uninterrupted. And they're talking about, you know, the Madonna adoption or something else. And and when it comes down to it, most people can't relate to your experience. Less than 1% of the American population has served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And looking back at World War II, you had about 10 or 11 percent of the population. So it's really unprecedented, the lack of overall involvement in this country. And and it's hard. And and it's why we need increased VA funding. It's why we need uh, more funding for post-traumatic stress disorder. One in three vets are coming home with mental health issues or post-traumatic stress disorder. And and it's really a difficult aspect to this war that I don't think anybody except veterans can, can really understand.
6: And I think it's a shame because I think it's a shame that Americans, I mean, I, I, you know, one, the one thing we, we learned, quote, learned from Vietnam is not to take out anything on the troops, to honor the troops. I mean, but, but there's more to it than simply putting, you know, a yellow ribbon sticker on your car.
7: Yep. And it's the president's fault. I mean, this president hasn't asked anyone to do anything. He talks about how this is a generational war and it's an epic fight. And when you know he starts talking to people, he says, "Go about your day-to-day business. I got it covered." <laughs> you know that that's not going to cut it. And if he's serious about this war and he's serious about fighting our nation's enemies, then he's got to start asking people to do things. And I think the American public wants to get involved in in one way or another. They have learned to separate the war from the warriors, but this is something that crosses partisan lines. Republicans and Democrats, all my friends in the military, are pretty upset with how the president has let the American public really get off without sacrificing anything.
5: To a boil, it's the Muslims and Kurds, Bedouin herds, Palestinians and Arabs, and Jews in the news. It's too much to keep up with, it'll jangle your head.
7: Control of the House and Senate is up for grabs in what many describe as the most pivotal battle for Congress in over a decade.
3: Whatever the outcome, the 110th U.S. Congress will open session on January 3rd, 2007. While the country's attention remains focused on the upcoming elections, few are considering the current state of the legislative branch. How did the 109th Congress perform? Well, the cover story of this week's Rolling Stone magazine takes on that issue. The article is called The Worst Congress Ever. How our national legislature has become a stable of thieves and perverts in five easy steps. It's written by Matt Taibbi, a contributing editor for the magazine. He joins us now in studio. Welcome to Democracy Now, Matt.
0: Thanks for having
3: me. Why worst?
0: Well, there's so many reasons why this is the worst. Um, The easiest ones to talk about statistically it's just the mere laziness factor. Uh, you've heard of the famous Do-Nothing Congress from 1948. Uh, this this uh, Congress smashed the record that was set by that Congress for fewest days ever worked by a Congress. That Congress worked a total of 249 days between the House and the Senate. This Congress worked 218 days total. So they beat that record by a month. And uh, even those 218 days uh, were made up of a lot of fragmentary days. So the House, for instance, had nine days that were less than 11 minutes long, and the Senate had three days less than one minute. So this is easily the laziest Congress of all time, if nothing else. But when they are in
7: session, they've uh, done quite a bit to change the way the Congress operates, right? I mean, what about the, the rules changes that you talk about in your article?
0: Well, uh, there's been a lot of changes just in the way that bills get heard and bills get talked about one of the things that this congress has done is drastically reduced the number of what's called open rules and open rules are bills that make it to the house floor in a form that allows congressmen to debate them and offer amendments to them uh... there was a time back in the late seventies when about seventy five percent of the bills that made it to the floor were open rules uh... now it should be said that uh... that number continued to decline While the Democrats still control Congress, by the time the Democrats ceded control in 94, that number was about 30 percent. This year, there were no open rules except for appropriations bills, which are always open. So uh, we've basically seen the last of those kinds of openly debated bills in Congress. Rule by cabal, what do you mean? Well, uh, the Republicans have um, have. Basically figured out a way to totally exclude the the minority from the process. Uh, you know, obviously, if you have the majority in Congress, you're going to have most of the influence anyway. But traditionally, in Congress, there's been a, um, a power-sharing agreement. Uh, bills were usually uh, made up in uh, in session between uh, the mi- minority and the majority, and the the two parties always worked together to make up major legislation. That's that's done now in Congress. That doesn't happen anymore. Uh, a great example is that um, conference committees where when you have uh... the conference that uh, hammers out the differences between the senate and the house versions of bills traditionally uh... both parties work in that conference committee to uh... create the final version of the bill well this congress has sort of pioneered a new method of handling uh... the conferences what they'll do is they'll have by law they have to have one conference that includes dem- democrats they'll have a five minute meeting where the Democrats are there, they'll take a picture and then they'll kick the Democrats out and they'll hold the real meeting later and they won't tell the Democrats where it is. And you get this situation that results, it's, it's really like a you know an elementary school thing where they won't tell the Democrats where it is, so the Democratic minority member will have to go around Congress literally searching for the conference, knocking on doors saying, are you inside? Uh, Give us was, an example. There was a famous example where the Ways and Means Committee, uh, uh, chaired by Bill Thomas, a congressman from California, he didn't tell the ranking minority member, uh, who was Charlie Rangel here from New York, uh, he didn't tell him where the conference was. Uh, and Rangel went around the, con- the Congress looking for this, this uh, conference, knocking on doors, and he finally finds it. He knocks on the door, and the Republicans hid behind the door, pretending that they weren't inside. Literally, like little kids, they hid it. They hid in there. Uh, you know, the one one uh, congressional aide said it was like the old SNL skit Land Shark, where uh, Charlie Rangel was the Land Shark. The Republicans wouldn't uh, wouldn't open the door. They finally opened it, and Thomas says to Rangel, he says, "Sorry, this is only for the coalition of the willing." uh... and he uh... basically kicked wrangle out of the room actually i'm sorry they packed up their stuff and they left and they held the conference someplace else and this kind of stuff happens at every level at every stage of the congressional process now so everywhere we used to have meetings between the two parties where they would work things out the republicans just uh... disallow uh, participation by the the democrats In
7: your article you you uh, paint a portrait <laughs> Of many of these congressional staffers that are just sort of lost, now the Democratic staffers, with nothing to do, and, and they haven't seen the sun in seven years, you say, <laughs> yeah. some of them. And w- What's the impact uh, uh, on the Democrats of this kind of uh, total,
0: uh, 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 not just embarrassment, uh, but humiliation. Uh, humiliation, yes. Yeah, it's, it's completely changed the way that Congress does business, and this is something that's difficult to quantify, but again, congress used to be a collegial place It used to be a place where um, democrats and republicans they may be they may be different ideologically but they used to hang out together on the weekends they used to play golf uh... you know together on the weekends and that was where a lot of things got worked out socially uh... was you know, outside of congress they would have lunch together they would they would socialize together with their wives that doesn't happen anymore and there's a complete antipathy now between the parties to a degree that the new generation even of democrats doesn't even understand the theory of of communicating with the republicans about things wrangled this congressman from new york tells a great story about how uh, uh i guess it was last year he went up to go talk to clay shaw who was a republican from florida and he just he had heard shaw was sick and he wanted to go and sit and you know, pay his respects to him and he goes and says hello to shaw on the other end of the floor and when Rankel gets back, one of the dem- young Democrats leans over to him and he goes, "What the hell was that about?" You know. In other words, the young Democrats don't even understand why you would talk to a Republican, even socially. And this is, you know, so you have the new generation of congressmen that doesn't even un- doesn't even know how to work together.
3: Matt Taibbi, what happened when the Democrats wanted to have a hearing on the
8: Patriot Act?
0: Oh uh, well, again, this is another way that they exclude Democrats from the process. Uh, you know, typically uh congressmen are allowed to hold hearings uh even the minority uh, members of a committee uh, are allowed to hold hearings whenever you will, whenever you want to but uh the uh, republican chairman have uh decided to make it as difficult as possible for democrats to do this so in this instance the democrats wanted to hold a um a meeting excuse me on the patriot act uh in the judiciary committee so they asked uh, James Sensenbrenner, who is the uh, chairman, he's this uh, famously dictatorial congressman from Wisconsin, and uh, he said, yeah, sometime in the future, but he didn't tell them when. Then one Thursday night, late on Thursday night, he says, okay, you're on for for tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. So the Democrats have to scramble all their witnesses, get everything prepared overnight, but they do. They get everything done, and by 9 o'clock the next morning, they're ready to hold their mirror, their hearing. Well, they start having their hearing, and Sensenbrenner decides that he's bored and he wants to leave, and he tries to gavel the hearing to a close before everyone's done. The Democrats said, no, we're not finished. So uh, Sensenbrenner, that wasn't good enough for him. So he literally got up. Walked across the room, shut the lights off, shut the microphones off and closed the door behind them, leaving the Democrats with all their witnesses, which included people from groups like Amnesty International and other groups, just sitting there in the dark. You know, again, this is this is stuff that you would expect in an elementary school, you know, not not in the Congress. I used to live in Russia. Even the Duma wasn't this bad.
1: Six years after Bush v. Gore, the elections process in America, 21st century America, is still a mess, a computerized mess. Diebold, the most notorious maker of voting machines, has been trying to get HBO to can its documentary, Hacking Democracy, spotlighting flawed machines, conflicts of interest, lack of accountability, corporate secrecy, except when it counts. But You don't need HBO to tell you that somebody's got their thumb on the scale. Just spend five minutes on the Google. Maryland, 4,700 Diebold machines have a crucial part replaced so they won't freeze anymore. In September, problems with electronic voting machines forced some primary voters to go home before becoming voters. Both a Republican governor and his Democratic challenger are telling voters, use the absentee paper ballots. Florida, The Miami Herald found machines in South Florida's early voting turning Democratic votes into Republican votes. Texas, same thing, found in Jefferson County. Ohio, after the May primaries, 24 machines had no data on them at all, and officials couldn't even find 29 more. Virginia, with a tight statewide race there, on some screens voters won't see Democratic Senate hopeful James Webb's full name because it's too long. And California officials have learned in recent days that the state's most widely used electronic voting machines can be manipulated to let voters cast ballots over and over and over again. What could possibly let you do that? It turns out you just press the yellow button on the back. The yellow, congratulations, your high score, you've just won a second vote button. One of the most notorious D. Diebold demonstrations was the work of Edward Felton, a professor at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, and he joins us tonight. Thank you for your time, sir. My pleasure. Based on your demonstration, how easy would it be for somebody with just a little tech savvy to hack a D. Bold machine?
9: It's not too difficult at all. All it requires first is to write a computer virus, the same kind of thing that someone would do on a PC, and then it takes about one minute to put the virus into a voting machine, from there, it will spread to other voting machines and affect who knows how many votes.
1: In 2003, the Diebold chairman said he was committed to helping Ohio deliver its electoral votes to the president. Um, he later resigned. He said that that was not exactly what he meant. Now it turns out, out, though, that Kenneth Blackwell, who was the secretary of state who oversaw those elections, who's now running for governor of Ohio, was a Diebold stockholder. How worried should all of that, those facts, make us in addition to the to the physical facts that you have determined?
9: Well, I think it's not a good thing when you have uh, partisan politicians, especially ones running for office, who are also running the election machinery. But I think the main story here is not, uh, is not so much uh, possibly biased election officials as it is the reliability and security of the voting machines, which leave, really leave a lot to be desired.
1: In addition to the things that we all worry about, have nightmares about, think we might have seen before in previous elections, what is now the, the capacity for things just getting screwed up? That one story about the 24 voting machines that, that had no results in them after the Ohio primary. How much, how much of the vote, how much of the risk here is, is, is just inadvertent or, or not even getting to the idea of how much of it might be stolen?
9: Well, certainly you're dealing with computers here. That's what these electronic voting machines are. And whenever you have a computer, you know what can go wrong. Data can get scrambled. It can get lost. Uh, these machines, as we've seen, can even, even, you can even see the whole machine lost. So all the usual computer problems, unless you have some kind of paper backup.
1: There is constant attention paid to those sort of glitzy, famous computer, or not computer frauds, but voting frauds, dead voters and people voting repeatedly and ID challenges and the rest of this. Um, USA Today reported that there has been a secret federal report that found there's little evidence of that kind of fraud. Is it, are we looking at those smaller problems so we don't have to look at this bigger problem?
9: Well, I think we need to look at all the problems. It's important that we get the right people into the voting booth. But then once they get there, we need to make sure that their vote is actually recorded correctly. Uh, to have a fair, to fair and honest election, we need to get all this stuff right and get it right at the same time.
1: So, Professor, if the, if the head of what amounted to the Federal Voting Reform Program quit in frustration because they wouldn't do any reform regarding e-voting, what's the solution Tuesday? Stay home?
9: No. Uh, the one sure way to make sure your vote is not counted is not to show up on Election Day. People have to go, they have to cast their vote, and uh, and then hope for the best. Our elections are mostly honest most of the time, and, and we hope that uh, that we can continue that on Tuesday as well.
1: How much actual reworking... How much actual money, how much actual time would it take to make a safe and reliable computerized voting system in this country?
9: Well, it would cost some money and take some time, but there are things we know we can do. And and the main thing we can do is go to a voter-verified paper audit trail. What that means is that when you cast your vote, the voting machine prints out a piece of paper you can look at and you can say, yes, this is how I wanted to vote. And then that paper's kept at the polling place as a record. So in case there's any dispute about what happened, you can go to the paper record, compare it to the electronic, and figure out what actually happened.
1: Professor Edward Felton of Princeton, who got into a D. Ball voting machine well, in a minute. Great, thanks for spending a few minutes with us, sir.
5: Never tired, desperately wanting when they
10: pumped out your guts, filled you full of those goods. You would never.
11: I've held my tongue all week. I've been a, a good steward of my tongue. Hey, forty-three. To How you holding up? tough cycle you're going through. Yeah, I'll say it's a tough cycle. You know how tough this cycle is, 41? Carl Rove is asking me for advice. (laughs) And 43, I've I've tried to hold back my temper because I don't want to use words that may be offensive in the Lord's sight lest he decide not to bless this war tomorrow. And if you think things look bad now, you should see them without the Lord's blessing. But holy damnation, 41, I sure didn't need you speculating fine on how bad life might be for your son if the, if the Democrats won Congress. Yeah, just saying I cared. Message, I cared. That's not such a bad thing for a a father to say to his nearly favorite son. Well, there are, there are less politically harmfulistic ways to say that, 41. You know, send some fresh fruit or, or, or a carton of energy drink or something. But, you know, how am I supposed to retain the optimism that is a key to my brand, mm-hmm. as Andy Card always w- would tell me, yeah. if my own dear father is going around right in front of my back telling every Tom, Dick, and Gregory that I'm going to have a Democrat Congress. No, it didn't say you would. Just said it would be hellish. Trying to motivate your voters to come out and keep you from having a hellish last two years. Sorry if you didn't think that was a good way to motivate your base. You know how to motivate my base, 41? Adam and Steve cloning human monsters. Speaker Pelosi bringing San Francisco values into the Speaker's office. That's how you motivate my base. (laughs) Not with silly scare stories about something that might not ever happen. And it's not as if I'm not getting the message, 4 to 1. Because I am! I know you think you're being all subtle and everything, helping Jim Baker back-channel his de realistic vision of Iraq to the media, winking as your closest advisors, leak their harsh judgments about all the good people working hard in this administration. Now, Sprout, and, at some point, thoughtful people are going to speak their minds, <laughs> even if it's in whispers. <laughs> but Never wanted to make you feel that your mother and I were sitting here judging you well, that's good because a feeling like that could could make a fellow turn to strong intoxicators. <laughs> I certainly felt it was well within your bailiwick to repudiate everything my administration had stood for. hey, hey four to want yeah am I supposed to apologize for actually not raising taxes no. after campaigning on cutting them mm. I mean <laughs> Let's not forget somebody needed to do a little clearing of the Bush name with the good conservative people who form Not just the backbone of this party, but its front bone, too. Fine. Just saying that when the foreign policy A team sees half a century of post-war achievement going down the doo-doo shoot. <laughs> some of them are finally going to want to pipe up at some point, can't be stopped up anymore. Yeah, 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 just wondering why that point can't be after November the 7th, and sir, please tell me why a certain Dr. Henry Kissinger, M.D., and just much a member of that so-called A-team as Bent or Brent or whatever his name is, Uh, I think maybe it's it's good to remember that this is the same Dr. Kissinger won a peace prize for running a war, so I think he knows a thing or two about foreign policy subtleties. Meanwhile, we lose a day when we can't talk about San Francisco values promoting the gay agenda in the Speaker's office because my own father's cronies have stabbed me behind the back think you don't want to be talking about those values in the Speaker's office. Think that might remind the voters of something. (laughs) But look here, Sprout, nobody's trying to do anything but keep your administration from spending its last two years trapped in a god-awful mess in Iraq and a god-awful bunch of hearings in Washington. Might not seem like it to you, but these people are trying to help. Sir, Mm -hmm. if I thought that people trying to disrupt my vision with some contrary information was going to help me. Shoot, I could have had that kind of help a long time ago. I could have had that kind of help from Colin. Colin's still a good man. Got a lot to offer. Offering it to his book publisher now, but you know what kind of help we could really use? Hmm. Carl and I were talking about. How cool it would be if you'd tape a a, a TV spot where you were shaking like Michael J. Fox. You know, just show once on the internets, get all the free publicity, get Limbaugh off the hook, get Iraq off the front page for another half day, maybe. Don't think so, Sprout. Not really the shaking on the internets type. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just a hypothetical. Thought you projected it. Good feisty attitude, with the line about people measuring the drapes too early, and a projected strength, and an, an almost Reaganesque optimism. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Don. It was a little strange for you to be denying that you'd ever been "stay the course." What do you mean? Well, you said "stay the course" all those times. No, but I didn't. I didn't deny I said it. Yeah, he did. Stephanopoulos show. I I denied that that we were stay the course, not that we'd said it. Uh, (sighs) All right, look, 41, I know you care, I get the message, but you just got to tell your your people, give me two more weeks to win this thing. Then I don't care if Jim Baker tells me to bomb Iraq to smithereens on the way out of there. In other words, help me now by not helping me till later. Look, 43, these are grown-up independent people. Don't own them. They don't work for me, except to the extent they may have Carlisle group stock options, but going to do what I can to keep the Indians on the reservation a couple weeks longer. Okay? I'd appreciate it, to One. Yeah. And if we pull this thing out and mm. Carl says we have an outside chance of keeping the Senate, so worst-case scenery, you know, I'm going to have to sharpen my pardon pen. Right. But, you know, if we do pull this thing out, Hey, me padre, blast away, give me all the so-called realism you got. My vision can take it. See, that's the thing about the vision thing. It's stronger than opinions. Okay, 43, you know, Barr and I wish nothing less for you than that you could start all over. So whatever you need in the next two weeks, certainly want you to get it, man. You can get back to campaigning now, okay? <laughs> you bet. Thanks. Give my love to Mom. Will do at the appropriate time. Take care, 43. <laughs> you too,
12: 41. Election time is coming. If I was president, I'd get elected on Friday. Assassinated on Saturday buried on Sunday if I was president if I was president a old man told me instead of spending billions on the wall we can use some of that money in the ghetto I know some so poor when it rains that's when they shower screaming fight the power when the vulture devoured If I was president i get elected on Friday Assassinated on Saturday Buried on Sunday If I was president If I was president If I was president If I was president, I was president. But the radio won't play there they call it rebel music. How can you refuse it? Children of Moses, If I was president. I get lifted on Friday, assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday. Numbers didn't discover America. Tell them the truth, the truth, yeah. Tell them about Marcus Garvey, tell the children the truth, yeah. The truth, tell them about Martin Luther King, tell them the truth, the truth, tell them about JFK. I was president, I was president.
13: I we got him on the run. On the Democrats have overwhelming leads in general polls. I mean, leads like I've never seen. They've not gotten in a general poll of independents a 27-point lead on the Republicans. That's huge. I mean, I don't know, Wes. Like I said, you're one of the most knowledgeable guys I know. Have you ever seen a 27-point lead among independents for either party in your lifetime? I got to
14: say, back when I might have seen it, uh, I really wasn't following polls Okay. But my guess is, when the Republicans probably swept into Congress in '94, they probably had pretty high marks in you, order to in order to get that among independents.
13: No, you're you're right, Wes. But uh, I I saw some of those numbers. And I, I don't have them in front of me, and they were not for independents. They were for just general population. Oh. And uh, those numbers, the uh, Democrats have far surpassed the 1994. Already? Oh no, kidding! Oh yeah. wow! That's yeah. So now, though, of course, the problem is 1990 uh, 2000. But, but let's not get overconfident. No, 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 We no.
14: still need everyone to go
13: to the polls. No, but that's we what did I'm,
8: that two years ago.
13: No, that's what I'm talking about now. That's what I want to get to. In 2006 is not 1994 for a variety of reasons. One of which is there's been more gerrymandering in those 12 mm-hmm. years. So now those uh, congressional districts are much harder to change. If you got an incumbent, they are well entrenched. I mean, that includes the Democrats. All of the uh, different districts have been carved up in a way so that there is minimal competition. So in order to get 15 seats in 1994, you really didn't need a tidal wave. But when you got a tidal wave, you got 50 seats. If you get a tidal wave this year, you'd be lucky to get 25 seats. There's a world of difference there. Second of all, some people are very genuinely and understandably concerned about Voting, You know, whether if you what, like the voting machines, the voting yeah, machines,
8: absolutely. I'm very worried about that this year. I mean, because, I mean, the last two elections have given me no hope in the fact that, you know, we can use these with any credit.
13: Uh, I hear you on that. And even if you don't think that the voting machines are fixed or anything, you could certainly understand that there might be computer glitches. Anybody who owns a computer uh, understands there could be, let's just call it a glitch in the computers. So even in some of the races, you don't want them to come down to one or two percent. You want to at least have a good. No, you want to have five or ten, right? You want to have a good margin of error—three, four, five percent—so that they can't say, "Well, you know, uh, sure." I mean, it looked like he was going to lose by fifteen percent in the polls, but I'm sure the exit polls must have been wrong. That's why he won by two percent. Like they can't make that argument.
5: I
14: found it interesting that uh, a lot of news organizations aren't going to be doing any exit polls on House
13: races. You know, Wes, you see, that's what I'm talking about. The frustration builds and it builds and it builds. I mean, you know, with this latest John Kerry flap, it was yet another example of how Democrats don't know how to fight back. And and voting is another perfect example of how they don't know how to fight back. I mean, my God, man, why why does it take you two years— since 2004 when we had all those problems, to not get this straightened out. And then, you're right, the the last possible check on computers that are not at all verifiable, and I'm telling you, even if you're a Republican or a conservative or independent, anybody who owns a computer knows it could be messed with, or it could have problems of its own. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the fact that we can't verify a lot of those throughout the country is terrible. It's a it, it, it's completely unacceptable, but what West pointed out makes it even worse. The one check used to be, "Hey, look, we're going to do exit polls. One that'll let us know who's going to win." Although, so although we can that check it. that
14: check didn't work in two thousand four.
13: No, no. But what happened was in two thousand four, it wound up being an embarrassment. Yeah, because the exit polls showed, you know, John Kerry winning, and to some degree, and then some of the other candidates, some of the other Democratic candidates winning, and so when the Republicans wound up winning. You know, some people justifiably were concerned about this. Dick Morris, of all people, was like, I've never seen anything like that happen. It can't happen mathematically. And then, of course, his conclusion was, so the exit polls must be wrong, and so let's eliminate the exit polls. Yeah, I was
14: a little surprised by the exit polls must be wrong.
13: Right. By the way, Dick Morris has made his life and his career based on exit polls. So he is so full of crap. But so if you eliminate the exit polls, then you have – no way of knowing. Who knows how people voted? Yeah, they, who it, knows? It's if you have no way of knowing if the computer screwed up, have they looked for at the one reason or another? Have
8: they looked at the companies that do do you know do the voting and they have the computer machines and all that stuff? I mean, and you know who are they related to? I mean,
13: yeah, I mean we know <laughs> D. Bold is completely Republican. The owner of D. Bold said he would do anything to get George Bush elected. I mean. I cannot fathom a scenario more egregious. I mean, if you had, just picture it this way: like if you're uh, had a, the, the leader of Venezuela, and he said, "Don't worry, I got the unverifiable vote, and nobody can check it, and I'm now canceling exit polls," uh, and the guy who runs the voting co- uh, my machine good company, comes, my good buddy, is you know is my friend uh, Hugo Jr. And he tells, and and Hugo Jr. says, "I'm going to do everything I can to get the Venezuelan president reelected." Now. What, what do you think we would say about that? Oh, God, Venezuela doesn't have a real democracy, banana republic, ridiculous. Send Jimmy Carter, right? But for us, why is it acceptable? It's nowhere near acceptable. But uh, I'm hoping that we get beyond all these problems. By the way, one more thing on that. ESNS, I've never known if I'm saying that right because it's so awkward. But anyway, you know who used to own him uh, before he decided to uh, you know, get out of that business and run for senator? Chuck Hagel. Chuck Hagel was the owner of the voting company, voting machine company. And then, by the way, he was really down on the polls, and then they have an election using his machines, and he winds up winning. No kidding. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's right. And Chuck Hagel, you know, look, among the Republicans— he- I mean, he seems like a pretty—among Republicans, he seems like a pretty honest— Guy, I mean, he's clearly one of the top three Republican senators. Like, this is the problem: is I loathe and cannot wait for their defeat. Chuck Hagel is not among them, and sometimes he's a voice of reason, although he never acts on it. He always votes in a bad way. But putting all that aside, I mean, you just look at that and you go,
14: "Chank, actions don't matter, words
13: matter." Oh, right, exactly. That's the other lesson we learned from John Kerry:
8: secretly cheating in the voting process. I mean, in the '60s. I mean, forever.
13: I mean, like it's people cheat. The that's, Democrats, that's I mean, do. fixed
8: elections back in the 50s and 60s, didn't they?
13: So it's just payback. You know, we'll are no, all we're just call just, it even. Uh, no, you're right, Joe. I'm you're just, exactly right. And that's I'm not why, saying,
8: you know, one justifies the other. But I mean, it's, it's human nature. People cheat. We just have to find better ways to check.
13: But that's exactly it. I mean, that's the, the last part there is. Of course, people cheat all the time. Who knows? Maybe the Democrats are cheating, right? Can't that's
8: why we... Bad need to, at it now.
13: Uh, that's, but no, I'm going to tell you something about that in a second. But that's why we need to verify the vote. Any sane person would be in favor of that. And of course, that was one of our reasons to kick the Republicans out. They're not sane. Uh, the Republicans have voted against all voter verification. Now, why would anybody vote against voter verification? If you had an interest in making sure the vote was not verified. I mean, it's a... By definition, it's terrible. But it turns out one small voting machine company is owned by Venezuela, and it's here in the United States. Yeah, I know. I saw that. Yeah, and of course you did. You're West Clark Jr. Okay. (laughs) I just just read a lot. (laughs) I hear you. And so all of a sudden, the Republicans were like, whoa, well, this is not wonder a Republican CEO. Well, we got trouble here. Wait a minute. We're going to have to verify this vote. And so they got all concerned about that. But, of course, not enough time to pass any type of legislation. So, but, now, having said all that, the, uh, one of the reasons I say that is because you have to go out and vote. Because I want you to imagine two scenarios. Because we're so close. We only have three shows left and five days left before the election. Okay. Two, the two scenarios I want you to envision. One is, November 8th, you wake up, you find out. Or you turn on the Youngturks.com late at night and you find out that it, that it, that it, we won. That a Rick Santor, gone. George Allen, gone. Jim Talent, gone. Senate, <clears throat> in Democratic control. In the House, that a, that a, we crushed them. We took 31 seats, switched over 31 seats. The joy we would feel would be untold. I mean, it's like we we talked to you know we've been teasing this thing we were going to do on Wednesday night for a whole week. The rack for sale movie we showed it last night; it was great. And one of our listeners came up to us, Dale, and he said, "I'm waiting for it like Christmas, like a kid waits for Christmas." And I, I'm right there with him. I am so I'm anticipating it so much. And if we won like that, God, it'd be better than me. Getting the Atari when I was a kid, which I didn't get, that I looked for for all those years. Which one
14: were you looking for, the twenty six hundred or the fifty two hundred?
13: You know, since I didn't have it, I don't even know. Which ones did you cool kids play with? Well,
14: the twenty six was the first. That's the one you wanted. Had Space Invaders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one
13: I wanted. Because you you know, know your
8: parents used to tease you on Christmas morning. You were just going to get a stocking
13: full of coal. Did you have Christmas morning? Uh, Yeah, I did actually
8: Sunni Muslim I feel like next Wednesday Is going to be like the reality come true, and it's going to be a stocking full of coal. All
13: right. Well, my Instead parents... of the
8: tent filled of toys that I got instead.
13: Right, right, right. My parents were not cruel enough to tease me with coal. Slash I'm confused by that, but you Christians are funny people. And yes, Wes, uh, even though we're Muslim, we totally had Christmas. In the beginning, we used to call it New Year's, and then we kept creeping it back towards the 25th because we were jealous the kids all opened well, up their presents. Wasn't
14: the original St. Nicholas uh, a Turk?
13: He was! And that's one of that rationalizations I use for Against my parents That's to move it to the 25th. That's a good one. <laughs> exactly. And by the end, by the time I was like 17, we finally did it on Christmas. Okay. Look, we're Americans. Let's get real. It's Christmas. Now, the other scenario, real quick. We, Wednesday morning rolls around or Tuesday night. You go to theyoungturks.com and you find out, yeah, we beat Santorum. I mean, that was going to happen. But George Allen has won. Harold Ford Jr. Has lost. lost. McCaskill lost the Jim Talent we don't have the Senate and you know what we only won 12 seats in the House we don't even have the House we've lost again it's going to be two more years of nothing but a green light for this administration and you hear George Bush and Dick Cheney giving speeches about how this was a mandate to stay the course imagine how crushing that's going to feel you cannot allow that to happen
10: Music is a world within itself